May 4, 1989. A million flashing lights, tires screeching, yelling and hollering, and above it all, freeze! Don't move, jerkweed! I froze, and not just my body, my entire being went completely primordial. I couldn't even breathe right. My brain seemed to have three levels. Disbelief it wasn't really happening. An acute awareness of what was going on around me. Completely frozen. Weapons were actually pointed at me. I'd never realized that when a loaded handgun looks at you, the barrel seems about the size of a sewer pipe. My first instinct was to raise my hands in the air, but I would have fallen over and tumbled off the wing. Jerkweed, the guy had yelled out. I hadn't heard that since Die Hard. The voice you just heard is that of a prolific drug smuggling pilot reading the opening passages of chapter one of his book. In the moment he recalls, his Cherokee Six had just been surrounded by men with guns drawn after he landed with enough cocaine on board to put him away forever. But for him, that's where his story takes a most fortunate turn because this marijuana and cocaine smuggling pilot is one of just a few to have gotten away. Stay tuned for this episode of Fly by Night. George Williams, and by the way, that isn't his real name, published his book Snow on the Palms in 2012. In the book, he felt free to share his extensive history of running drugs from the Bahamas and Columbia into South Florida. By then, the timing had run out for any crime for which he could have been charged. Now, it should be noted that the stories he shares, he tells under his assumed name, and that makes them hard to verify. But with that said, it doesn't take a lot of research to verify key details of his life as George Williams. And as best as can be determined, his knowledge of locations, times, and known facts match well with the record. Returning to why he has felt free to share his story, one crucial aspect is that all of George Williams' crimes have been nonviolent crimes. But that doesn't mean they've been small. He may have had a small plane, but his Piper Cherokee 6 was more than capable of runs to the Bahamas for hundreds of pounds of marijuana in the beginning, and then later, making longer flights to Medellin, Colombia, to bring back millions of dollars of cocaine. During that time, William says he was nothing special in the heyday of drugs being flown into Florida. He was just one of many enterprising pilots up for an adventure that came with a big payday but there was something that did set him apart from his fellow smugglers. Early on, when he departed for the Bahamas and returned with a load of Colombian red, he would often pass over his parents' home on the shore. That's the shore that's comprised of some of the most expensive real estate in the country, Palm Beach. George Williams was that rare flyer, a rich kid who was now running drugs. As detailed in Snow on the Palms, Williams has had an eclectic life. His inventor father did well enough for the family to purchase a home on Palm Beach, and with his own talent as a recording and performing rock musician, Williams had his own income. So as a student pilot, he had the resources to buy his own plane when most new pilots can only dream of such a luxury. I would drive past an airport that had a little sandwich board sign that said, ride five bucks. And that got to me after a while. So um, I stopped in, and this was in 1972. I stopped in and, um, you know, I wanted a $5 ride. And 
they're very clever. You know, the guy says, okay, and he starts explaining things to me, which I, I did. Why is he explaining this? I just want to ride. And of course, we go up and they say, you know, grab the wheel, do this, do that. By the time I get down, he says, well, now you're going to need a logbook and this and that. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I was hooked, you know, right away. And that was a, a Cessna 150, which, which was like ridiculous because the two of us weighed about as much as that thing could carry. I made a deal with the instructor, uh, a guy named Pete, right away. I said, we can't fit in this 150. I said, how about if I buy a plane? You can use it whenever you want, but you give me lessons for free. So he liked the idea. So that's what we did. And I bought a Cherokee 180, a 1968 Cherokee 180D. And it worked fine. He used it sometimes, which was great, you know. And uh, and then I got the lessons for free. So I wound up um, getting my private, I guess, in 73. With his father celebrating his success with the purchase of a Palm Beach mansion and enticing his son to come with him to join in a new venture, Williams packed up his plane and headed south. Not long after he arrived, a chance meeting at his local airport would change George Williams' life as a pilot. Actually, our whole family kind of moved down at once, meaning my, my brothers and I and my dad, because he had uh, he'd been in, an inventor. And he sold uh, one of his adventures to Johnson & Johnson, and he uh, decided to move to Palm Beach. So he, he did, and we all, he said, you guys want to move with me? We'll start another company. We, that sounded pretty good. So we all did. I was moving to the area, and of course I took my plane. I looked on a map, and there were three airports that I could uh, base myself at that were in the area, but the closest was, was gardens. It was a real small strip. So I landed there in 73. I think I flew to the Bahamas one time and I flew around the area. And then one day, uh, Lee, uh, approached me and he said, you know, he said, Hey, nice plane. You know, we got to talk. So, um, they asked me, did I want to, you know, participate in this stuff? And they said, what, what real, I didn't know much of anything about it, you know. This is just offshore here. You don't have to do much of anything. And I said, there's no risk, you know. Depending on where you land, the cops will help you unload. Uh, what? You know, so that's kind of, okay, well, what's it pay? And, uh, you know, when that's they said uh, the, the money, which I believe at that time was a hundred grand for a, a load of Colombian Red, because my plane helped quite a lot for a single-engine aircraft, you know. And, uh, what hundred grand for a, a afternoon flight? No risk. I didn't really believe the no risk part, you know, but heck I, okay. I'm in. It was wide open. That has to be one of the most commonly used phrases in conversations with those who flew drugs into South Florida in the early to mid seventies. And the other thing they often say that it wasn't simply for the money. It was the thrill of living a double life, of getting away with what others were too timid to try. It was like a spirit of adventure. I mean, it was almost like, a, I don't know, a soldier going to war or a guy going on a big adventure. I mean, there was no, I, I mean, to, to be honest, there was no moral quality to it. There was no, like, well, what am I doing? This is illegal. It was like, whoa, you know, it might as well have been flour, 
it was just a load of stuff you get a lot of money for, and these guys are doing it, and it's a beautiful flight out there, and it's not far. Yeah, let's go. You know, that's about all the thinking, really, there was to it. And I think that's all the thinking of any of us that did it. Listening to Williams, it doesn't seem like it took a lot of convincing to move him from well-to-do pilot to risk-taking smuggler. His new friends made it sound so easy, and his first trips did nothing to dispel their claims. Well, I, I left um, Gardens Airport and flew low. You know, I didn't know if there was any radar coverage or anything, but I flew low. I actually went over to my parents' house uh, on the ocean and headed straight out to uh, to Dubai, it was easy to find, you know. And um, once I got offshore, I uh, I I gained a little altitude because I was worried about pelicans. You know, get hit by a pelican, you're going down. So I didn't want to get hit by anything. So I, I you know, got up to I don't know if I got to a thousand. I might have gotten to a thousand, but that was that was to be the most. And then just headed up to Dubai. It was like I say, easy to spot. And um, they loaded me up, and I had I supervised them because th this plane had would take cargo both in the rear and the front, so you had to make sure it balanced out, you know. So we did that, and then flew back. And uh, what I, I did, what I was advised to do, which is stay real low, and come up and join the pattern at Gardens, like you just took off from that airport and just went around and uh, flew a pattern or two. So. My parents' house again was exactly in in along that path, and uh, I think that was a trip that my dad wound up. He was out on the lawn and he and he and they saw me and he took my picture, which was really funny. But I landed there, and then uh, over time, the other guys landed because it, it was staggered. Nobody, you know, the orca to land as a fleet, right? That would be noticed. And everybody went down and, and you know had a meal, and um, then they unloaded it that night. Um, and there wasn't a lot of lighting at that airport so the the cars and stuff uh, lit up lit up the, the the field so they could load the stuff which didn't take very long and uh, the guys who loaded were these turned out to be Colombian nationals I mean they were obviously not Americans and then they left and it was clever how they loaded it because some of them were on um, uh, trailers of cars or trucks like they were taking you know transporting uh, automobiles and vans and and they put the stuff in in the in one case it was like a, it looked like a milk truck and they got a lot of stuff in that and then they were gone and they left a bag of cash Colombia it's impossible to talk about the history of smuggling by air into the US without talking about the outsized influence of this country on the northern edge of South America. With its rich heritage and history hijacked in popular culture by those who flooded the United States with drugs in the 70s and 80s, for a time Colombia's name became shorthand for contraband that spread throughout the United States. And when that contraband shifted from pot to coke, it more often than not arrived on board a plane that passed through Florida. In the vast airspace that sits over the United States, there are a few areas where the number of aircraft in the skies at a given time is stunning. That's always been the case in South Florida. During the busiest years of smuggling by air, 
the thousands of legitimate flights provided cover for the many planes that were hauling illicit cargo from the islands, and increasingly from Central America and Colombia. And it was at airstrips on the arid northern shores of Colombia, and the lush valleys to the south, that planes were packed to their fuselage walls with the drug that pound for pound changed the economics of smuggling from the days when the majority of cargo was marijuana. When drug production in Colombia turned hard towards cocaine, pilots who had thought they were becoming rich by bringing in pot now realized that great wealth was possible if they were willing to take the risk. When faced with that decision, many refused, but not George Williams. Though aware of the potential danger involved with failing to deliver the millions of dollars of cocaine he would be entrusted with, he looked at it as a businessman would and easily made the switch from hauling pot to coke. The market changed, and so uh, it got to be that the Colombians, in particular, started replacing their crop of uh, marijuana with the uh, cocaine. And um, so it wasn't so much a conscious decision by us pilots to switch from one to the other as it was. That's what the market was doing. It was just one more step from a quick hop to the Bahamas to flying down to uh, Colombia. I mean, it was a it was a long step. It was far. Basically, it was the same same sort of people. There were other groups doing it, of course, besides us, as I'm sure you know, because of your podcasts. You know, a lot, a lot of different groups doing it. I didn't really have very much uh, interaction with any of the people down in Medellin. Except when I, uh, I can't remember why I had to, I know I was trying to negotiate a better price. That's when I, I met Escobar and, and, and his uh, henchmen like Rafa. And, and I would meet them sometimes when I would go and, and pick up a load, some of these people. And the, but the, the time I met Escobar, I was at his ranch to try to negotiate another deal. Well, I would say he was larger than life. And at least that was my impression of him. He didn't really speak English, so there was. Uh, if he did, he didn't. He didn't do it when I was there. So there was some other people, you know, translating. But he felt, I think, an affinity for pilots because he flew himself. The, his airplane, his first airplane, is was up on a uh, on the entrance to his ranch. Um, so he he kind of uh, he was an affable kind of guy, I thought, which I knew he really wasn't in a lot of his dealings, but for, for me, he was. A Piper Cherokee 6 like Williams owned is considered a very capable load-hauling single-engine plane. But even with larger fuel tanks providing an impressive range, the 6 still needed a conveniently located fuel stop to and from the airfields of Columbia. George Williams found that stop in a long dirt strip along the coast of Honduras. Well, there really wasn't um, a lot of choice if you wanted to, if you know, if you if you needed to refuel. It's not like I picked Puerto Lumpera over a bunch of other places. That was about the best place that was on the coast, so it wasn't too far out of the way, and was about halfway. And there really wasn't much around it, so it was sort of a natural choice. I, I didn't pick it because of any other reason than oh, good, this is about where I need to to be. The flight from Puerto Limpira, Honduras, to Medellin, Colombia, was pretty straightforward for Williams. Though far easier now with GPS, 
It wasn't hard to fly heading from Honduras to the north shore of Colombia before following a highway and recognizable landmarks to one of the airports used by Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. And um, I believe I, I had a bearing on the big airport and then taking the left turn. But then you just take a left turn and follow the highway, and that was pretty much the way to do it. If your knowledge of what it took to fly loads of drugs into the United States only came from watching films like American Made or Blow, you'd think that every smuggling flight was filled with danger. And it is true that planes and pilots disappeared on those flights for a variety of reasons, including flying old, worn-out aircraft, or overloaded planes that couldn't make it off a short runway on a hot day, or encountering bad weather going to and from South America. George Williams has few such stories of escape from danger to tell. The closest he came to an end that would have left family and friends wondering what had happened to him was the classic near collision that came about as he needed a lower altitude to keep him out of the clouds and below radar. The one that was the most memorable was when the uh, I made a bad decision to try to get home um, from Puerto Lumpira when the weather was going really bad, going south. It was it was because I just had a, a social engagement. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I oh, I, I got to get back for that. It, it, not a not a smart decision. So it was uh, overcast and it got worse and worse, and uh, that was the time when I suddenly came out of the fog and there was a helicopter rescuing uh, some people uh, on a boat that had apparently capsized. And I came within, I don't know, 50 feet, 100 feet, the guy. And it was over before you realized it, but we, we both looked at each other in horror. That was, that was pretty scary. But most of them weren't that memorable. They were just beautiful flights, nice weather, you know, Go down there, have a taco, refuel, load, go. Along with his large-scale transportation of the Medellin cartel's cocaine, there came a time when Williams took on the role of middleman in the small-scale but lucrative retail operation to satisfy the desire for coke by some of the well-to-do citizens of Palm Beach. And it began innocently enough with renting his garage apartment to a stranger. In Palm Beach, a lot of the houses are older and they have detached garages. And mine did as well with uh, an apartment over it. And that was my intention when I moved in there to use it as a music studio. But I never did get around to lugging the stuff up these narrow stairs to, to, to set up the studio. One day the doorbell rang and this very aristocratic looking guy who was a Middle Eastern kind of guy looked like a young Omar Sharif, dressed uh, immaculately. He knew I had a garage apartment and was it available, uh, which I hadn't really thought about uh, until that point. Yeah, well, I'm not really going to turn this into a studio. So he, he really wanted to see it. So we, we went up and he saw it. And we kind of, I decided to write that. Yeah, sure. You could, you could have it. He seemed like a nice enough guy. So I rented it to him and he moved in. Turned out he was an architect. And he worked in Palm Beach. So we got to be kind of friends. That's how, that's how I got to know Hector. We got to talking about stuff. And I, he, he knew everybody at Palm Beach. I don't know really quite how, but he, he did. 
we got to talk and he and he mentioned that uh gosh he knew he could move a lot of this stuff and uh, i had been to a couple of events where um and there were always lawyers who were asking me hey you know where we get some blow you know this whole, you know wow this is might be a market so uh hector said i could move this stuff okay look you know might be a risk but if you want to do the whole thing yourself uh, have at it and i would you know i managed to uh to get him a, a small supply and no matter how much i got him he sold it <laughs> in what first appeared to be the bad luck of bad timing on a run that had william stopping at puerto limpira for fuel on the way back to florida he got out of his fully loaded plane at the dusty airport to find some other planes parked there with their pilots and passengers pretending to be there to fish. But instead of fishing gear, they brought guns. Remember how this episode opened with George Williams and his plane loaded with coke surrounded by cops with their guns drawn? In his book, he tells how he was able to walk away that day with the help of a government agent he first met at Puerto Limpira. Here, he describes that meeting and the unusual and very beneficial partnership that developed. Well, I was making my usual stop back at Puerto Lumpira one time, so the plane was full of uh, of goods. When I landed, there were several other aircraft there that were not normally at Puerto Lumpira, and I and I asked the local guy, I said, well, "What's this?" And he said, "Well, they say they're here to fish." I oh, didn't seem right. And did they have a lot of fishing equipment? No, but they had guns and they had radios and oh okay so i said hmm this could be uh tricky maybe i better just have a sandwich and get out of here you know but i wound up spending the night and uh i met one of them and uh, he asked me what i was doing there and i said i was a medical missionary which was a story i had concocted long before in case i ever had to use it i was going to i forgot what country to deliver uh medical goods and he said, oh, yeah, we're here for the fishing. And so that was the end, except that uh, they had gotten into the plane overnight. And I, I could tell because, uh, and they had peeled back the tape on the end number so they knew who I really was. Oh, wow, I didn't need that. But then they contacted me a couple of weeks later and they said, uh, would you be interested in flying these medical goods that you fly now for us? <laughs> Which kind of like, what? So that's you know, they that they initiated the contact and they explained that uh, they no longer had their little air force, you know, Southern Air Transport, and that they were they they could use these goods and, and a number of operations that they ran, and um, but they couldn't really get them themselves. And so, well, okay. So my main interest in doing so was not the money because they weren't going to pay very much but for protection. And so that's why we came to that arrangement. And I would fly the occasional load for those guys. And, and their loads were usually smaller and uh, and sort of irregular. You know, they were, you know, with the with the cartel, I mean, there was somebody counting everything, you know, and how keeping their eye on everything. These guys were, yeah, load this, load that, you know. And, uh, and they loaded it in plain sight, which was horrifying. Well, they wanted to go to the Naval Air Station in Key West, which was nuts. I said, no, no, we can't do that. So I think we went to Tamiami, just south of Miami, and landed and landed there. 
And then they just drove up in a van and loaded a van in broad daylight. And I was like, what? This isn't, I guess they didn't care, you know. As many trips as he flew, and as much money as he made and kept, George Williams doesn't consider himself one of South Florida's big-time smuggling pilots, just one of the many that use their piloting skills in the criminal trade of importing prohibited substances. But another thing that did set him apart from any of his fellow smuggling pilots was how he chose to launder his money, and he's written a book about that as well. You know, I didn't want to leave the impression in the book that I was like the main guy doing this or the, the sole person. There was a lot of groups running this stuff. Um, I mean, they were looking at $60 million a day of stuff. And uh, so I was just a small cog in a big wheel. Sometimes it'll be a double trip. if you, And that's where you really made the money because the uh, if you got a, if you brought the money down, well, let me put it this way, if you, if the, the plane would hold uh, $44 million cash in $100 bills. It had no seats behind me, so I could every square inch and every pound that I could get, it would hold $44 million, uh, or, or the equivalent of 18 bales of marijuana or 440 kilos. So it was like all those three loads, and it was a, it was a physical operation that had to bring the money down so people... Uh, that were, and this was a small group of couriers because I mean the trust element is really the key here to load your plane up with forty-four million bucks and show up. You know, you got to be able to trust those guys. Of course, they had ways of making sure that you did. So if you were timing it right, you could bring a load down to Medellin and then fly up to around Santa Marta and load up. So you made. The same amount of money each way, a little over $1.3 million. So, uh, you know, a couple-day trip was $2.6 million. So you didn't need to take that many trips. At first, this cash was, you'd stuffed it in your bedroom closet and had no idea what to do with it. I had to come up with a plan. And so I had already been playing blackjack for years, so I the trick was to launder it in Las Vegas. I set it up so that uh, you know, I would be a visible gambler in Vegas, which is something that card counter usually that's the last thing they want to do. But it was the first thing I wanted to do because I wanted to, you know, get my reputation for being a uh, a heavy card player in, in that town. And then I would wash the money through Vegas. I would bring it out there, and then I established an account in the Valley Bank. And that was ostensibly my, my gambling winnings that were going in when really I just brought it out and stuck it in, you know, and I, I would still play, but not for the, that kind of money. I ran into a guy who was a computer IT person and, and now we're going back to the, like the 1980s. So it was pretty rudimentary and he had been, um, barred in Las Vegas for counting cards. And I, I didn't know if I believed this story, but he, you know, he said, no, I'll show you. And he brought in that book written by a guy named Lawrence Revere, a math professor, uh, as to show how you could actually beat the game. And I got kind of interested in it, and I started doing it at home, you know, dealing the cards and doing the bets and seeing if it really worked. And it, it worked. So once I had theoretically been able to count cards and beat blackjack, I said, "Oh boy, I'm I'm heading out there. I'm going to clean that town out." And I got I got wiped out right away. 
Because what I didn't realize is that uh, these guys have seen card counts before and they have defenses, you know, and I wasn't really focusing on that. I was just there to, to play. And it took about three trips before I could actually start to win. And uh, and then, then I was, it, the, the operation ran pretty smoothly after that. You know, I'd go into the Valley Bank and talk to the VP. Yeah, I had a good week at the table. And they'd put in a bunch of cash. And uh, so it, it covered that. And I, I always paid taxes, which was something nobody did. To describe the life he left behind so many years ago, George Williams turns to a quote by a baseball Hall of Famer who reflected on his time in the major leagues. Well, I think the best way to describe the time I spent doing, running the drugs and stuff, was best expressed by Mickey Mantle, uh, the old, you know, the Yankee ball player. When he was asked about his career, he said, it's like it happened to another guy. And in a way, that's sort of true. You know, it's like, you know, that or the blackjack or whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, it happened, but it's sort of like surreal now. It was, you know, I, 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 hard to explain. I, I don't have any moral judgment on it, but uh, it was like it happened almost to another guy. George Williams continues to live and fly in South Florida with flights for fun to the Keys or out west, and according to him, they're all normal, mundane, and very legal flights. You can find a detailed account of his life in Snow on the Palms, available on Amazon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly by Night. Fly by Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson, with sound design and original music by Abe Stites. Show art is by Aini, with additional design by Abe Stites. The show is produced, hosted, and edited by Charles Stites. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review, and subscribe to Fly By Night wherever you get your podcasts. And for photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.